Wednesday, March 30th, and this is VOA's International Edition. I am Chinedua for in Washington. Coming up in the next half hour. Russia pledges to scale back attacks around Kyiv as peace talks with Ukraine end in Istanbul without results. A decision was made to radically, by a large margin, reduce military activity in the Kyiv and Chernihiv areas. More cases of COVID-19 reported in the Pacific as outbreaks worsen in some of the remote places on Earth. Daily case numbers are rising in Samoa, an island nation of about 200,000 people, 5,700 kilometers east of Australia. And U.S. regulators approve another booster dose of the Pfizer or Moderna COVID-19 vaccines for people 50 years and older. We'll have those stories and more next on International Edition. Stay tuned. Russia said on Tuesday it would sharply scale back military activity around Ukraine's capital, Kyiv, and the northern city of Chinehiv in the most tangible sign yet of progress towards a peace deal. Deputy Defense Minister Alexander Formin made the statements after talks between delegations from the two countries in Istanbul. The meeting ended with both sides stressing the importance of the negotiations and indicating a willingness to compromise. Dorian Jones reports from the host city, Istanbul. Istanbul, Turkey's largest city, hosted the fifth round of Ukrainian and Russian peace talks. The Russian delegation described the more than four hours of talks as positive. Speaking to reporters after the talks, Deputy Defence Minister Alexander Formin placed a reduction in military operations. Foreman said, in order to increase mutual trust and create the necessary conditions for further negotiations and achieving the ultimate goal of agreeing to and signing an agreement, a decision was made to radically, by a large margin, reduce military activity in the Kyiv and Chernihiv areas. The Russian delegation said further steps on reducing military operations will be discussed on their return to Moscow. Tuesday's talks focused on Russia's demand that Ukraine should become neutral and end its aspirations to join NATO. The Ukrainian delegation proposed that eight countries should guarantee its security, including Poland, Israel and Turkey, in exchange for neutrality. Ukrainian negotiator Mikhailo Poldolyak, speaking to reporters, said international guarantors are key to accepting neutrality. Poldolyak said intensive consultations are underway right now on some important issues, the most important of which is agreement on international security guarantees for Ukraine, because with this agreement we will be able to end the war as Ukraine needs. The delegations also discussed proposals on the disputed status of the breakaway Ukrainian republics of Luhansk and Donetsk and Crimea, which Russia annexed. Ukraine demands their return, while Moscow calls for their international recognition as independent states and Crimea as Russian sovereign territory. Among the proposals discussed was that Crimea's status would be subject to a 15-year consultation period. But the Ukrainian delegation insisted such a step would only be possible in the event of a complete ceasefire. Expectations had been low ahead of Tuesday's meeting, but Turkish Foreign Minister Mevlut Çavuşoğlu claimed the talks had achieved the most progress since the start of the war. Analyst Sinan Ulgen says Ukrainian-Russian negotiations in Istanbul underline the importance of Turkey, which has been careful to maintain good ties with both sides during peace efforts. 
As a result of this balanced policy, Turkey is one of the few actors that can play a, you know, a constructive diplomatic role. Uh, right now, that diplomatic role can best be defined as one of good offices, which is possibly more than a facilitator, but less than a mediator. But analysts suggest that a meeting of the Ukrainian and Russian presidents is key to ending the conflict. While Kiev says it's ready for such a summit, Moscow insists it will only be possible if there are concrete proposals to discuss. Tuesday's meeting may turn out to be the first step in that process. Doreen Jones of VOA News, Istanbul. The International Committee of the Red Cross reports a misinformation and disinformation campaign has been waged on social media to discredit its humanitarian work in Ukraine. Lisa Schlein reports for VOA from Geneva. The Swiss-based organization warns the humanitarian crisis in Ukraine is deepening. It finds the level of death, destruction, and suffering inflicted upon the civilian population since Russia invaded the country February 24th abhorrent and unacceptable. Relentless bombing of the port city of Mariupol has demolished civilian homes and infrastructure. It has displaced tens of thousands of people, depriving them of food, water, and medical care. Spokesman for the International Committee of the Red Cross, UN Watson, says civilians in Mariupol and other frontline areas are making life and death decisions to flee when there is no agreement that would allow them to leave safely. He says a surge of misinformation and disinformation is jeopardizing ICRC efforts to protect and distribute humanitarian aid to people trapped by conflict. We are seeing deliberate targeted attacks using false narratives and disinformation to discredit the ICRC. Uh, and this has the potential to cause real harm for our teams and our Red Cross, Red Crescent Movement partners working on the ground and for the people we serve. Watson says a huge flow of misinformation and disinformation is being orchestrated across social media channels targeting the ICRC. For example, one claim that has no basis in truth, he says, is the agency's alleged role in forced evacuations. The ICRC has not been involved with any forced evacuation or forced transfer of civilians into Russia from Mariupol or any other Ukrainian city. The ICRC does not want to open an office in southern Russia to filter Ukrainians as many reports are alleging. So that is absolutely false. We are not opening a refugee camp or any type of uh, another, uh, any other type of camp. Watson says the ICRC operates on the basis of impartiality and neutrality. He says it expects the warring parties to fulfill their obligations under international humanitarian law to protect civilians and limit military operations to exclusively military objectives. Lisa Schlein for VOA News, Geneva. In a sign of just how much the Middle East has changed recently, Israeli officials say they are building a new regional coalition against Iran. Four Arab foreign ministers and the U.S. Secretary of State were in Israel as a new nuclear deal with Iran appears closer than ever. Israeli Foreign Minister Yael Lapid said the meeting would become a regional forum and the Arab foreign ministers and Israel will meet frequently. Linda Grastin reports for VOA from Jerusalem. Israel's foreign minister and the host of the summit, Yair Lapid, said the meetings of the foreign ministers of Israel, Bahrain, the UAE, Egypt, and Morocco would become a permanent regional forum. He also made it clear who the forum is aimed at. This new architecture, the 
shared capabilities we are building intimidates and deters our common enemies, first and foremost, Iran and its proxies. During the summit, a suspected terrorist apparently affiliated with Islamic State killed two Israeli border policemen. It was the third attack in a week, and all of the summit participants condemned it. U.S. Secretary of State Antony Blinken said that the 2020 peace treaties between Israel and several Arab countries were making once impossible things possible. The Abraham Accords are making the lives of people across your countries more peaceful, more prosperous, more vibrant, more integrated. They're allowing governments to focus their energies and attentions on the issues that are actually affecting the lives of our citizens and making them better. The United States has and will continue to strongly support a process that is transforming this region and beyond. Also present was Egyptian Foreign Minister Samah Shukri, who called on Israel to resume negotiations with the Palestinians, who were also conspicuously absent from the summit. During these discussions, uh, we did highlight the importance of the Israeli-Palestinian peace process the importance of maintaining the credibility and the viability of the two-state solution that uh, for Israel and a Palestinian state to live side by side in peace uh, with the recognized uh, borders for a Palestinian state uh, in accordance with the uh, 67 lines with East Jerusalem as its capital. The foreign minister of the UAE, Minister Sheikh Abdullah bin Zayed al-Nahyan, reminded participants how new all of these relationships still are. It's new for, I think, Abdul Latif and Nasser and myself to be in Israel. This is our first time. So if we are curious sometimes and um, we want to know things and learn, it's because although Israel has been part of this region for a very long time, and we've not, not known each other. Uh, so it's time to catch up. Meanwhile, Jordan's King Abdullah arrived in Ramallah to meet Palestinian Authority President Mahmoud Abbas in his first trip to the West Bank since 2017. Linda Gradstein for VOA News, Jerusalem. The International Committee of the Red Cross and Red Crescent Societies, or IFRC, has expressed concern at renewed attempts by thousands of migrants to make the dangerous sea trip through the Mediterranean Sea for a better life in Europe. Officials have stepped up patrols to rescue hundreds of migrants in dinghies and unsafe boats embarking on the perilous journey. Rita Wanjiru Nyanga is communications coordinator for the International Committee of Red Cross and Red Crescent Societies. I reached her aboard the Ocean Viking, a search and rescue ship operating on the Mediterranean Sea, for an update on the number of migrants rescued. In the month of March, in the last one week, we have rescued 158 survivors. On the 24th of March, we rescued 30 people, all male, who are in an unseaworthy rubber boat, and uh, we brought them on board the boat. And then the following day, on the 28th of March, we rescued 128 people. This included 20 women and 52 unaccompanied minors, and then males. So in total, it was 158. We continued to request support closer to the side of Europe to give us a port of safety. And yesterday, the Italian authorities told us that we can dock in Augusta. And we docked into Augusta yesterday evening on the 28th. 
the Italian Red Cross came and uh, did COVID tests on all the survivors that we had rescued. And this morning, they were disembarked from the boat and now they are the Italian Red Cross who managed them from there onwards. Have you recorded any fatalities? On 26, when we were rescuing the 128 people, we later realized that two people had lost their lives and they were inside the boat. We tried to rescue them, at least to take their bodies and bring them to the ship so that they could get a decent burial. But due to the alarming weather conditions, only one person was uh, rescued. And this was, of course, to, we are working alongside the SOS Mediterranean. How bad are the migration routes? The most unfortunate thing, actually, is that in many of the countries in North Africa, there is conflict, and people are moving from one country to another in search of economic support. So they use poorer border routes to cross. Sometimes they work alongside smugglers. And many of the stories they've been telling us is that while they left their countries to go and look for a better place, they find that where they went, whether it is in Chad, Libya, the situation is much worse. So sometimes they spent all their money with the smugglers and they see that maybe to go back to their own country is not a good thing and they prefer to move forward. And that takes the risk of crossing the sea to get to Europe all in search of a better life. What are your worst fears for these migrants? First of all, I would say that every time they get rescued, it is a time of joy and hope because then they are no longer in danger and they are in a safe place. Usually when they come on board the boat also, they have injuries, they have cabbies, they have fuel burns, they are suffering from stomach problems. Not to mention that the journey they've been through is also really horrible. They've given us stories of working without receiving any pay, being treated like animals, being swindled by the smugglers. Some of them are making the journey for the third or fourth time, the fourth time they are, they are attempting. We know that really many have died at sea, others sometimes get arrested by court guards and they are taken back. Not all of them are able to make a safe crossing. My hope for them really is that when they get to Europe or the point of safety that they will arrive, they will be able to find at least living a place where there is no violence and be able to start a new life. What kind of support are you getting as you try to save these migrants? Well, immediately they come on board the boat. We have Red Cross teams. They are offered their medical support. All those who are sick are treated. They are also given fire state. We also give them psychosocial support. Talking with them, uh, giving them hope, listening to their stories, because many of them have been through a very tremendous journey. That's Rita Wanjuru Nyanga, Communications Coordinator for the International Committee of Red Cross and Red Crescent Societies, or IFRC. She spoke with me aboard the Ocean Viking, a search and rescue ship operating on the Mediterranean Sea. In other news, U.S. regulators are allowing people 50 and older to get another booster dose of the Pfizer or Moderna COVID-19 vaccine. The Food and Drug Administration's decision aimed to offer extra protection to the most vulnerable in case the virus rebounds. The FDA said Tuesday that age group can seek a fourth dose at least four months after their previous booster. With COVID-19 cases currently low, it's not clear if they should rush and get one. There's a limited evidence to tell how much benefit another booster could offer right now. The FDA ruled without input from its independent advisors. For more on this story and other breaking news, visit our website at vonews.com. 
Remember to connect with us on social media. We are on Twitter, Facebook, and Instagram. Search for VOA Africa. You are listening to VOA's International Edition. I am Chinedo in Washington. A decades-old struggle for greater autonomy in the French island of Corsica is gaining new momentum after Paris said it was open to discussions following the death of an imprisoned Corsican nationalist. Now, another French area of the mainland, French Guiana, in South America, is also pushing for greater self-rule. Lisa Bryant has more for VOA. Top nationalist figures turned out for Ivan Colonna's funeral last Friday at his ancestral hometown of Carges in western Corsica. The former shepherd died after being attacked by an Islamist extremist at a prison in mainland France. Colonna was serving a life sentence for the 1998 assassination of France's top official in Corsica. Colonna's death has sparked some of the most violent demonstrations in years on the Mediterranean island, which is a popular tourist destination. Protesters, many of them young Corsicans, blame the state for not accepting a long-standing nationalist demand to transfer Colonna and his accomplices to a prison in Corsica. Now, Paris appears to be listening. In a surprise announcement, French Interior Minister Gérard Darmanin says the government is open to greater Corsican autonomy. He visited the island earlier this month, holding talks with the ruling nationalists. But in interviews with French media like this one, Darmanin has ruled out full independence for Corsica. Et donc il y a une jeunesse véritablement aujourd'hui qui existe, qui se revendique... University of Bordeaux Corsican specialist Thierry Dominici told RTL Radio that Colonna's death had been like a spark, unleashing pent-up anger and nationalist aspirations of young Corsicans especially. He and others warned of more violent demonstrations to come. Corsica is not the only place pushing against France's centralized government. Brittany and Alsace also have nationalist movements, but nowhere near as strong as Corsica's, where nationalists dominate the local government. Some of France's overseas territories, like New Caledonia and Polynesia, have gained various degrees of autonomy over the years following referendums. Now, apparently inspired by Corsica, lawmakers from another overseas area, French Guiana, are also pushing for more autonomy. In Corsica, the militant Corsican National Liberation Front movement waged a nearly 40-year armed struggle for the island's independence, which ended in 2014. Colonna's assassination of French prefect Claude Erignac was the most serious incident. Today, many Corsicans do not support full independence. The island's nationalist leaders are themselves divided, with some supporting more autonomy in areas like fiscal powers, alongside the official recognition of the Corsican language, and hardliners backing full independence. Candidates for France's April presidential elections are also divided. Far-right hopeful Marine Le Pen opposes autonomy for Corsica, while a number of leftist candidates support it. A recent IFOP poll finds just over half of all French support an autonomous statute for Corsica. Lisa Bryant for VOA News.
More cases of COVID-19 are being reported in the Pacific as outbreaks worsen in some of the last places on Earth to be infected with the virus. Samoa is extending a nationwide lockdown until April 5th, while a state of public emergency remains in place for Solomon's Islands. From Sydney, Phil Mercer reports. Since the start of the year, the Pacific Island nations of Kiribati, Tonga, the Solomon Islands, the Cook Islands and American Samoa have all had their first major waves of COVID-19. Academics blame the spread of the Omicron variant and the reopening of international borders. Daily case numbers are rising in Samoa, an island nation of about 200,000 people, 5,700 kilometres east of Australia. Its main hospital in the capital, Apia, is under increasing pressure as more frontline workers contract the virus. Samoa has reported almost 1,300 coronavirus cases since the pandemic began, according to government data. No deaths have been recorded. Dr. Colin Tukui Tonga, an associate dean at the University of Auckland, says island nations have had time since the start of the pandemic to prepare for outbreaks. The advantage, of course, of the two-year delay is they're able to test their systems, vaccinate their populations, inform their population. So there's no doubt there's some advantage of being affected down the line as opposed to being one of the early ones. And this has been an advantage for the small islands. Isolation, uh, which is normally a curse uh, with people trying to get their goods to markets and so on, was a protective uh, factor. But with travel being loosened and border measures lifted, it was always going to happen. Fiji has recorded 64,000 infections and 800 deaths since the pandemic began, the highest among the region's island nations, according to the World Health Organization. Experts have concerns about the ability of health systems in other parts of Melanesia, including Papua New Guinea and the Solomon Islands, to cope with rising case numbers. The World Health Organization has documented more than 43,000 infections in Papua New Guinea and 640 fatalities. In the Solomon Islands, the WHO has recorded 10,778 COVID-19 cases. 113 people have died. However, some island nations in the Pacific remain COVID-free, including Nauru, Tokelau and Tuvalu. Phil Mercer for VOA News, Sydney. This is Science in a Minute. Astronomers using the Atacama Large Millimeter Submillimeter Array and the Hubble Space Telescope made a detailed study of the mysterious death rattles for a carbon-rich star called V-Hydri. The astronomers say the star is in the end stages of its transition from a red giant to becoming a white dwarf. According to a study published in the Astrophysical Journal, the scientists saw six smoky rings that gradually expanded around the star, along with the formation of two structures that looked like hourglasses. The study suggests the rings and structures were formed over 2,100 years by the high-velocity discharge of material from the star into space. V. Hydri has a reported mass that's about the same as the sun and is located about 1,300 light years from Earth. I'm VOA's Rick Pantaleo. 
Go beyond the daily headlines with VOA's Flashpoint Ukraine. Each weekday at 1935 UTC, join me, Steve Miller, as I put the latest developments into a global context with interviews and analysis. Listen online at voanews.com slash flashpoint or in your favorite podcast player. of America on behalf of the entire production team. Thank you so much for listening. Visit our website for in-depth coverage of world events and news 24 hours a day at voanews.com. Until next time, I'm Chinedo for Washington, wishing you a great day.